I follow the work that you guys have been doing with uh, CSPI. And okay. that's a really, really cool initiative. Like I follow Richard on Twitter and he's also got a little bit of buzz around his latest article about, I remember exactly how he termed it, but essentially how institutions have a disproportionate political leaning sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is sort of my area as well. <laughs> but did you guys work at all or did he bounce any ideas off of you for that piece? Not really. He's very independent and he's, he's, he's quite a, an original thinker. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, he'll draw on, there's a bunch of us that are in a sort of network. We follow each other and we're doing sort of similarly heterodox things, but, uh, and interested in certain topics, you know, and interested in data, uh, driven mm-hmm. social science, you know. Yeah, uh, it's a great team that you have. Like Zach Goldberg, who I follow his writings on tablet occasionally. And it's a really, like, it's funny. I sort of see CSPI and also the heterodox academy, like the Jonathan Hyde is like sort of two real, strong intellectual beacons of good political thought and like fair mindedness, which is so missing today, unfortunately. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it is remarkable when you look at the, so the CSPI report, um, when you actually look at the sort of political composition of faculty and, uh, yeah. you see how skewed that is. And, and, and it's, it's sort of become that way over time as, as, and quite I'm convinced quite, this has happened quite deliberately, but um, but yeah, that just ideas about certain topics, there, certain points of view just can't sort of see the light of day in academia. So students won't be exposed to those in the university. They, they can be exposed to them online, but not in the university. And how do you feel, or what would you advise someone who's sort of interested in doing a PhD? I was sort of on the fence about doing a PhD at one point. And again, I'm not a, like I think I'd probably be considered a center left and a right individual, depending on my politics. But I guess on campus, you'd probably be considered a decently conservative viewpoint if you sort of fall in that center point to, in some departments, I'd say. Yes. Is that is it a fruitful path for people who are sort of heterodox thinkers? Like I know there's obviously great thinkers like yourself and Jonathan Haidt who are in academia, but it seems like it's tough to get to that place of security. Yeah, I think it's... Hmm, what would I advise? So clearly, if you're interested in a particular subject, mm-hmm. um, it's a good way to pursue that in depth, to do a PhD. Um, however, if you want to do something controversial uh, or, or where that has a political, uh, p- clear political implications, you can be as far left as you want. Right. And that's fine. You won't suffer a penalty. But once you move from the, even in some cases, even if you're in the center, but certainly if you move slightly right, then right. Uh, you're dead in the water as far as kind of getting an academic post. Right. You know, it's it's going to be much, much more difficult. And, and we've kind of, you saw that in these surveys that we did where we asked people, they would openly admit, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say, you know, recommend this grant bid if it was right-leaning or this promotion application or this journal article. And that's kind of giving you a sense of there is pretty open, a minority who are openly willing to discriminate and all it takes on a, so when, when you have one person who has say, if the average person has a 30% chance of discriminating, you put together three assessors, four assessors, you know, by the time you've got to four assessors, you've got, you know, almost a perfect chance that you're going to meet at least one person right. who opposes you. So so essentially, PhD, you'd have to be in the closet as, as far as your political views. I have a friend who's doing a PhD at a Canadian university, and he formerly went to the University of Toronto for his undergraduate in the history department, which is a good department. 
Yeah. He and I were drinking beer like right around the corner at a bar. And he was afraid of me like speaking too loudly or making jokes. And he told me to like, like whisper a little bit because he was genuinely afraid that maybe some former acquaintance of his would overhear and he would sort of be in a very compromising situation. It was like, it's strange. Like it really is a very strange cultural climate that's going on right now. And your book, White Shift, which I loved, I just like sort of read it cover to cover, sort of, Great. sort of <laughs> stands right on that fault line, I think, of like really robust research, but also pushing the envelope in terms of bringing new ideas and advancing new ideas about white identity or as an ethnic group and parsing that apart and looking at demographics and immigration. I think it's, it's a really powerful book, which I think a lot of people should read. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ari. I mean, I, I, I would agree, of course, but I think, yeah, this is an example of where, um, yeah, this is kind of topic where you would find, find it very difficult to express, Mm -hmm. you know, certain positions, which, which the data would be telling you. Right. So, so if, for example, um, you know, white identity is heavily correlated with having an ethnic identity and like Irish or or Italian or whatever, you know, the stronger you feel about being, Irish, the stronger you, you, your white identity. It's, it's not actually that radical a thing. It's a bit like the stronger your, um, Cuban identity, the stronger your Hispanic identity, right? So it's not, it's the same for groups, whether they're white or non-white. And, and it's sort of an outer layer of, of identity. But that's an example of, of the kind of thing which should be just obvious knowledge. The, the data is so powerful that it just should, it shouldn't even be controversial in any way, but it's on basically, more or less unsayable that that essentially white identity is because you are you hate people mm-hmm. who look different and um, well I think that's well, quite, I yeah think it into a very valuable concept which you have spoken a lot about in the book which is the Overton window which a lot of people might not be familiar with which is sort of like that comfort zone of legitimate and permissible speech I guess within society and I'm not sure maybe your thoughts on how academia maybe has shifted that Overton window or, or how Trump how you explained in the book has shifted it maybe on immigration but. I think it really is a powerful concept because when we're talking about immigration and identity politics, it's something which for some ethnic groups, it can be extended and seem as it's almost um, inherent. Everyone understands that there's a Jewish community, there's a black community, but people don't really understand in terms of a white community or a, a communal consciousness in that sense. And I think that was a great part of the book that you highlighted. Yeah, I mean, it's, thanks, because there's all, there are certain ways, so you can say that you know, there's been large-scale intermarriage between Protestants and Catholics and Jews, and, and it's created this, uh, you know, Euro-American group. So Richard Alba, American sociologist, and he's a good liberal and everything. And so you can sort of approach it from one angle, and people will say, yeah, that." and a lot of people are just ticking Canadian or American on the census. And, you know, you can see where that's happening. So that, that won't be too controversial, you know, but once you start to sort of apply any kind of uh, moral standard that isn't a condemnation to that real sociological phenomenon, which is just a reality, right? So, but right. then you are suddenly offside, right? So it's sort of, but but this Overton window concept, yeah, that picks it up where it's about the nature of taboos right. in our society, which which are, in my view, actually not as recent as some people say. I I think when I was going to Western uh, in the late '80s, early '90s. That um, to say, I, I think the same things which are taboo now were taboo then, and mm-hmm. it's just that it, you know that was the time when political correctness was emerging. And but even if you were to go back to the 1960s, they were still the main taboos. 
you know, you'd have to go before the 60s to actually find a climate where those were not the main taboos and it was, you know, homosexuality or, or, or being non-religious or whatever, that that would have been bigger. But, but I think um, that, that the culture, you know, I think these things are kind of in the DNA of the dominant ideology Mm-hmm. which merges in that late 60s period. But as, as I write in the book, the, the, the tap roots go back into the early 20th century, but then they really scale up in the 60s. And, and I think actually, you know, what we've seen is more or less all about scale and, and not so much about new ideas. So all of the cancel culture and the narrowing of the, mm-hmm. the window of acceptable debate is mainly driven by the fact that more people who graduated with this worldview because there are are more people going to university, more Mm -hmm. people in diversity offices, more equity and diversity statements and diversity training. All this sort of stuff ramps up, gets institutionalized, creates this climate, narrows the the acceptable debate around the hot-button issues, essentially race, gender, sexuality. I think those are the key three. Mm -hmm. And And you have an interesting vantage point, which is something that I didn't really think about, but how you go about looking at the American arena, the Canadian arena, and also Europe, and how sort of in Europe, especially in the United Kingdom, you were saying how the discussions about immigration are very different than, for instance, Canada. I don't, I guess, because you're sort of swimming in the water, you don't really realize sometimes the political climate of Canada, which maybe would be more analogous to sort of like in New York or California if you lived in the U.S. Um, but how did yeah. that international vantage point allow you to look at this issue? Because I think it's a really fascinating sort of um, differentiation that you can see across these countries. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really interesting. I think, like, you can find in all these countries a, a very narrow Overton window around immigration in certain realms. So, so, for example, in the Labour Party in Britain, you would find this a climate which isn't a million miles away from the climate in Canada around – oh, in English Canada, not French Canada, but in English Canada around immigration. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., similarly – in the blue states, in uh, many, in almost every institution, you would find a similar climate to the climate that you find in Canadian politics. But, but, no, but in the Republican Party now, mm-hmm. it's no longer the case that that taboo holds. That that taboo used to hold, really, including in the media to to a great extent in the right wing press, even in the right wing media in the U.S. Right up until 2015, that was that was actually a kind of taboo. It, it, it was, you know, really not, you know, Romney could talk about self-deport, he could talk about illegal immigration on the border, but he couldn't really make it the center of his political platform the way Trump did. Right. Um, once after Trump, then places like Fox News and the Republican Party have mm-hmm. shifted. Now, I think there are real problems with Trump and with the Republican Party, so I'm not endorsing um, right. well, a lot of Right. And that's one of the things which I find fascinating is that your book seems extremely measured in calling out bigoted and racist rhetoric. And yet it seemed like there was so much public outlash at the book itself, which I don't, I really struggled to understand because from reading it, it seemed like there were tons of disclaimers and qualifications about statements, which you were able to clearly delineate as like, this is something that's beyond the pale. This is the definition I would use for racism. And this is something that went beyond that. And yet there was still such a public outlash, or at least from some of the reviews I was reading, that really gave you a really difficult time, even after all these qualifications. Well, yeah, because I think, you know, for a certain kind of progressive mindset, um, 
if you aren't condemning the wall, for example. So, so what I said was, you know, there's a big difference between insinuating that, you know, Mexicans are rapists, you know, and I know that's not exactly the words that he used, but essentially a loose generalization that would suggest that everyone coming across the border, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is a bad person, a rapist or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which is, in my book, racism from something, because it's directed against another group and generalizing in a sweeping way from something like saying, uh, you know, we need a wall to help control uh, illegal immigration, which you know, lots of countries do. Right. It's pretty standard state behavior. Uh, and there's nothing racist about a wall. Uh, you know, even though you know, it's 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 also possible that somebody might have a racist motivation for wanting to put up a wall. That doesn't make the wall itself de facto right. a racist thing. And that's the kind of subtle difference uh, that is very hard for people who have this very black and white broad brush view of the world, where you know you're either the good a good guy or you're a bad guy. <laughs> right. Well, I found in the Jewish community, I think it's been a very interesting. Um, dilemma, especially with uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. And I was speaking with a Holocaust survivor, Pinchas Guder, who's a pretty outspoken um, community activist and community organizer for martial living and stuff like that. And he's a big refugee resettlement activist. And I was saying, how do you sometimes balance the needs of refugees and migrants against sometimes the local communities, especially when they've done polling that shows that sometimes they don't hold the most liberal views towards Jews or homosexuals. And you can see European Jewish communities that are sort of in a difficult position right now. And like that nuance, I think sometimes is missing because of that Overton window that we're talking about—the constrained ability to, at least in North America, to sometimes have these conversations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting with the, you, you know, Jews. If you look at Jews in Britain, they're overwhelming. They're the strongest conservative party uh, voting bloc, right? So they're overwhelmingly conservative in the U.S. They're still, I think, you know, I, the last figures I saw was not much more than thirty percent voting. Yeah, Republican now. Obviously, with the with the ultra orthodox and other groups being Republican, that's going to change. But still, it's interesting that I think just the way the interaction between uh, being Jewish and and political party systems mm-hmm. works in different places. Because I mean, even before Corbyn, Jews were already heavily conservative in Britain, right. and um, so I, I'm not a hundred percent able to explain. Like part of it is where which region of the country they're in, mm-hmm. but I'd be interested to see the numbers in Canada actually more conservative leaning in Canada. Are they more conservative? Yeah, I'm, I think it definitely took a uptick with Stephen Harper. I think, right. and, and I think one of the mediating factors, which I don't know how it would cut across with different ethnic groups, but for the Jewish community, probably a very good correlation is intermarriage numbers. The more likely you are to be probably embedded in a Jewish community, the more likely you are to probably be close to Jewish identity and support Israel. And that usually sort of is a good crossroads between if you're going to vote more left or right leaning. And in well, Canada, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, we've been sort of more insulated from intermarriage um, pressures, I think, as much as the United States, maybe because we're a younger country immigration wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's fascinating, yeah. Like, because this is a, they're tough debates, or at least they're nuanced debates in terms of weighing the interests of genuine migrants and refugees leaving and fleeing situations towards the incoming community. I think you did a lot of work on that, especially in the United Kingdom with the Brexit vote, especially with Eastern European communities, which I think was a fascinating little um, side point over there. Yeah, I mean, well, part of the point I was trying to make was that. You know, there are two things. There's an issue about refugees, getting them to safety where they're housed and clothed and fed. And then there's permanent settlement. And and I, I guess I break the two apart that, that you know, and, and I don't know, 
you know, my, my I did have, you know, my grandfather escaped from from Czechoslovakia, and, and you know, so I'm certainly aware of of the importance of having people given be given a refuge. But I think it's another thing to say. Uh, so what I think we need to be doing is being as generous as you know, any number of people should be allowed to be. Uh, take refuge and be housed and fed and everything, get away from whatever genocidal thing is going on. Um, but I think this, this, this second step in assu- of assuming permanent settlement yeah. and, and to be naive about the kind of incentives that will then lead, mm-hmm. uh, give to people to want to essentially claim asylum. Like if you look at the U.S. southern border, I just think these are, you know, economic migrants, which is fine. And I'm totally like, I would be doing what they're doing. So I don't blame them at all. Um, but I think realistically, yeah, the, the world is unfair. There are some wealthy countries, there are poor countries. And of course, people are going to try and get mm-hmm. whatever route is open to them to to the wealthy countries. But I think the the better off countries, you know, they ha- they are democracies. Their populations are willingly giving up half their income to pay tax for fellow citizens. There's a social contract there. You cannot just ride roughshod over democratic, uh, the the will of the population. So there's got to be a control on the numbers. um, That's in line with the, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the discussions in across Western democracies or Western societies has shifted to a better place or to a worse place in the last five years or maybe, and what is your, (laughs) I know forecasting is obviously a very difficult business, but what is sort of a feeling towards, is there encouraging signs or there are very discouraging signs when you look out at the horizon? Well, I think, you know, I think the populist uh, rise post-2014 in Europe and to some extent in the U.S. has uh, opened up the conversation on uh, immigration numbers for centrist parties, particularly center-right parties, but also some center-left parties such as those in um, in Scandinavia, for example. And so... I think that's to the good, that, that I think these things should be talked about openly. Like some people want faster change, some slower. That's one of the points in the book is that we have to find an accommodation instead of saying the people who want slower change are deplorables and bigots. And you have to be in the group that wants only faster change, right? Right. which is essentially the position of a lot of uh, progressive opinion formers. And, and this is academia would be a major uh, place where you'd encounter that. You know, be very, very rare to find any academic supporting reduced immigration. Um, And so that mindset, that black and white, very simple, simplistic uh, kind of, yeah, essentially the world and opinion is complex. That's a way of trying to create moral simplicity and enforce it. So I think getting anything that gets us away from that is is to the good. Um, Sorry to interrupt you, but are there any academics or people on campus that you really turn to and consult and see as a as a sharp researcher or someone who's doing good work? Because I know obviously there are a lot of sort of um, unsettling aspects of university today, but are there places, departments or schools or individuals that you look to as like I would follow up on him and I would read what he's publishing? Uh, well, there would be individuals in, and it depends on the topic. Um, you know, I think, you know, I mean... Oof, you, but you, you know, so I mean, my Matthew Goodwin, who's a friend of mine, and and he's he he writes some interesting things on populism, um, but but you're right on these contentious topics. It's very difficult in academia to to publish. And I mean, Arthur Sakamoto, looking at sort of sociology of um, race, for example, ethnic mobility. Um, He's interesting, uh, Orlando Patterson at Harvard. But so there are individuals out there uh, who are interesting. But I think 
you know, the climate on campus has been getting tougher. Uh, it was already bad and it's gotten worse. You, you, you can look at the number of um, attempts to cancel professors. That's jumped from sort of 15. You know, it was sort of 10 to 15 in the last few years, according to the National Association of Scholars database on this. And it was 65 in 2020. So it's been this massive jump. And, and the no platformings, certainly in Britain from 2018 onwards, there was a big spike. And in the U.S., 2015. So, yeah, it's essentially with this new ideology that people call wokeness, which is what I call left modernism, which is yeah. based on uh, sacralization, uh, making sacred uh, historically marginalized race, gender and sexuality groups. So if once you say these groups are sacred, they're out of bounds for any, you know, anything that might offend even the most sensitive member of such a group is, or, or any criticism of a policy meant to help right. such groups such as affirmative action or, or anything around indigenous studies or, or anything like this, any criticism, you, you immediately are whatever, a racist, or you criticize Black Lives Matter, you're a racist, or you criticize, you know, um, the, yeah, the trans debate. What's that? I don't know if you've been following in Canada and Nova Scotia, there's a small university called Mount Allison. And there's a professor, yes. Jordan Peterson retweeted it, but she had posted, I think, on a personal comment or blogs that she was sort of critical of some of the Black Lives Matter activism and systemic racism critiques and whatnot. And she has now been sort of, I think, temp like, I guess, not. I'm not sure fire is the proper word, but she's sort of living without pay right now. And she's not. Yeah, yeah I know that that is remarkable. Um, you know, just yesterday. Uh, yeah, so this in Britain wouldn't, I don't think, I think this would be increasingly difficult for universities to do now in Britain because but that's because Britain has a conservative government who has now gotten serious about this. So we've we've just had a bill go through yesterday and, and a lot of the recommendations came from a report actually that I co-authored, a think tank report on academic freedom in the UK and that's simply going to make it, you know, any university that does that will immediately be hauled in and told to reverse it, uh, you know, unless they can show the person has violated you know, essentially broken the law, then they, they aren't going to be allowed to, to, to do stuff. So, so essentially what you need, I worry about Canada because, because the conservatives are relatively weak and the liberals and NDP are all generally pro left modernism. So they would favor the emotional safety of historically marginalized groups as a higher value than freedom of speech, for example, or academic freedom. And therefore because that's the dominant culture in Canada, you're going to get things like hate speech laws that are with with hate defined quite expansively. Right. I would worry that academic freedom won't be protected, um, and even internet freedom will be only protected for certain. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just think there'll be an ideological bias in the way uh, these things are enforced. So, I and, and I don't see any real hope given the electoral situation to yeah. get a government in that's going to deal with that. Where you, you ultimately, the only, it has to come from government. There's no way mm -hmm. we're going to get the culture to change enough anytime soon, I would say, because the younger people are, are more intolerant now. Um, and so, yeah, I just think, I worry that Canada's staring down the barrel of, of increasingly repressive speech climate. And I think that ties into one of the research reports that you had put out recently, which I think was on either... Um, City Journal. And also it reminds me of the work done maybe a couple of years ago about the political tribes. I think it was popularized in the Atlantic, but it looked at the differences in views towards immigration and immigration um, perceptions of racism between different groups, like within white liberal versus white conservative, black liberal versus black conservative. 
And it's amazing that in some ways, maybe because we viewed these groups as sacred, we sort of look at them monolithically. But in the sense that one of your data points, one of the executive summary data points was that black conservatives and I think white conservatives are more likely to not overstate the amount of police killings as opposed to traffic accidents that cause death to American blacks, which I found was a fascinating point sociologically because it really talks about the rootedness or embeddedness of racial racial perception, um, basically, and how that impacts your view of society and current events. Well, yeah, I mean, it shows, I think, quite clearly how um, having this particular ideology of left modernism warps your view of reality, right? So if you strongly, uh, you know, so if you, for example, believe that white Republicans are racist, if you, if you agree with that statement, which is about 60 to 65% of uh, liberal Americans, whether black or white, would agree with that. And so white liberals who agree with that, seven out of 10 of them believe that more young African Americans are shot by police than die in car accidents. The real ratio is about 10 to one um, in favor of car accidents. But it kind of shows you how that belief system makes it impossible for you to get a, a factual question right because you're going to be swayed by the media, by images, by anecdotes, and you're con- we all consciously self, you know, select the anecdotes that confirm our bias. It's called confirmation bias in, in psychology. And um, the whole point of the scientific process is that you submit your Con, you know your confirmation biases to evaluation, uh, empirical evaluation based on standards everyone agrees on, and you can be disproven. But of course, when you have orthodoxy, you're not allowed to raise those questions. And no, you couldn't. You know, if you did an academic paper where you sort of pointed this out, it would be very, very difficult to get it published. Someone would find some reason why, well, you know, the methodology wasn't quite right here or there, and you didn't dot this I. And so they, they would try and sort of not allow it to occur, uh, to, to be published. So we're essentially getting a warped picture of a warped knowledge. Scientific knowledge is sort of distorted around any of the sacred totems. Um, and I guess the greatest question or the most pressing question I have, which, and I sympathize with you, but why would you, obviously this is a research interest of yours, but why would anyone voluntarily subject themselves to this? Like you <laughs> like go about your way, you have tenure, you can live a comfortable life. Like you don't have to get harassed or uh, terrible emails. Like why would the vast majority of people probably opt not to go down this research pathway? And was it something which was sort of pulling you to explore more and deconstruct? Like, what was the motivation behind it? Well, I I think I did sort of, maybe subconsciously, I didn't even realize I was probably, you know, I won't say self-censoring, but I was probably pursuing less contentious projects or uh, phrasing things in less contentious ways to avoid, you know, after a while you just become you just see it as part of the furniture that you can't go to certain places, right? And then as you get older, uh, you probably just say, ah, what the hell, I've got, you know, nothing to lose anymore. And, and, and also, you know, you learn, yeah, at this point, probably it doesn't matter to me anymore that I don't get invited to certain places and that I can't socialize with certain people. Um, and you just say, it's more important to just tell the truth. And, and, you know, so that's more or less what I did. Although I haven't said that, I mean, I, I, if you go back to even earlier things that I've done, there are, some are some areas are, are clearly continuous. So this whole idea of um, left modernism and asymmetrical multiculturalism, whereby um, there's this view that uh, sort of majority group ethnicity is is a terrible thing, and you right. should try and slough it off and be cosmopolitan. Whereas if you 
have a minority ethnic group, you should actually uh, be very parochial and cling to your tradition. So, so that contradiction is something I'd, I'd pointed out, you know, as even in my PhD thesis. And so I already was willing to say something, but certainly sort of to, to say that, uh, you know, white identification and the desire to, to have limited immigration is, is sort of group self-interest could be understood in a framework that is the same framework that would lead, say, a, a some Mexican-Americans to want more immigration from Mexico. I mean, it's the same motivation, right? That kind of thing probably I wouldn't have said. Right. And have you heard any critiques in the year or so or two years since the book has been released and since you started researching it, which made you uh, contemplate maybe some of the major points that you had made in the book? Was there anything that you were like, okay, maybe I should pause and reflect on that? Or do you sort of feel that, broadly speaking, the, the um, emphasis of the book and the argument of the book still holds very strongly today? Uh, yeah, I, I, I really don't think anything much has changed. So, for example, the, the argument that um, the rise of populism and polarization is essentially cultural and psychological rather than economic, I just haven't seen any evidence to, yeah. to, to strongly contest that. I mean, I have seen some evidence that would suggest there's small effects where you have a very deprived... Mm-hmm. Uh, area, you know, that that might have some contextual effect on people's support for populism, particularly when we're talking about, let's say, populist parties, not something like Trump or Brexit, which are large-scale mm-hmm. 45 50% movements, but something where it might be the PVV in the Netherlands right. or UKIP, or something that's more at the level of, say, 10-15%. Right. Then I think you can see more of an effect on that, but uh, certainly... For things like Trump and Brexit, no. I mean, this is this is almost entirely cultural and psychological. So I haven't seen any. And what I would say is that the COVID episode that sort of that gets people thinking about their health, thinking about the the weakness of the economy, all things that are not favorable, I think, to populism. As that fades away, and you get immigration again. And you get people no longer just thinking about healthcare and the economy, then the kind of issues that favor right-wing populism in particular are going to be back. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think you add to that the whole in the U.S. with the crime wave around defund the police, and and you know that's sort of that plus you've got cancel culture, which is becoming a more and more uh, important issue for. Uh, for, for more people. So that is now more of a debate, the whole free speech debate and tech censorship and all of that. I just think these cultural questions are going to be defining politics. I mean, in Britain, I don't know if you saw, there was, um, we had local elections and a, and a major by-election, which showed that, you know, an area that hadn't voted for anything other than the Labour Party, the left-wing party for, you know, 50 years or whatever, um, you know, voted conservative by a margin of like 20 points, or I can't remember what the actual margin was, but it was all essentially, you know, these people are not rich, they're kind of, it's a working class area, but culturally they're with the conservatives. And 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 that's now what distinguishes the parties. So the Labour Party's class uh, makeup is, if anything, more, uh, you know, white collar than, than the Conservative Party, which would have been just mind-blowing even in 1997 you know right which i think is one of the fascinating points which you raise in the book which is that's sort of the abandonment of white working class or at least the integration of them into more conservative parties i think especially like when you think of deindustrialization um death of despair like angus deaton's research in the united states um and i guess similarly in the uk with uh with brexit it seems to be 
the shift towards more cultural phenomenon that's sort of driving um, left-wing politics or left modernism politics, as you would call it? Yeah, I mean, you have two things going on. One is the, that, you know, the energy on the left is all coming out of this cultural left. Mm-hmm. So that turn of the left, which begins in the 60s, but it's really taking off and now penetrating into the parties, the Democrats, the Labour Party, and the Social Democrats in Europe, you know, that they have now, you know, given that that's what they want to talk, they want to talk about, you know, the environment and Palestine and, and trans and all of these issues, their voters are still largely, were still largely essentially interested in welfare and jobs and the material stuff. So there's been that kind of disconnect. And as they pushed and pushed down the sort of cultural route, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those voters who were patriotic and were kind of in some ways traditional, they don't, they're not into defund the police. They're not into trans, uh, you know, you, that you can't discuss trans issues or, or else you're a trans. So, you know, these sorts of things are quite foreign to them. And so they are now shifting away from the, from these parties. And then meanwhile, of course, on the, and then of course, with the rise in, in immigration levels, particularly in Europe, um, you know, that corresponds with more voters um, who are concerned about that issue switching to cons- sort of right-leaning parties, mm-hmm. initially populist, but now more center-right parties that have adopted a lot of the populist, mm-hmm. uh, some of the populist positions on immigration, for example. Right. My last question, and then I'll, I'll let yeah. you, sorry for bothering you for so long, but... No, um, not at all. And do you see, and I guess this is the one thing which I really took away from the book was this idea of cultural production, intellectual production coming from universities and sort of the absence of it on the conservative thought or the conservative spectrum. Are there any analogs to that today? Or is there, is there, is that one of the reasons which drives sort of the intellectual or cultural inequality? Like you don't really, when you think of the animating issues of today, they're usually driven by the gender race, sexuality kind of questions, the cultural turn in the 60s. And you don't really, at least not off the top of my head, think of conservative issues or a conservative consciousness in that sense. Well, yeah. So the, the conservative intellectuals are mainly media and think tank, um, you know, some academics, but but it's it's more difficult, of course, for them to exist in, in academia. And there's only about in the social sciences and humanities in North America, it's only about 5%, roughly, I would estimate, that are conservative. Um, and so it's extremely small, right. um, first of all, and, 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 and restricted. I mean, the, you know, certainly, I think there are conservative intellectual currents. I mean, one of them is populism, this idea that no low taxes and uh, democracy promotion is not really what defines conservatism, but actually conservatism is about, uh, you know, pre- you know, some sort of preservation of tradition and social solidarity. And, um, and that would include usually some notion of, of nationhood, uh, nationhood, which is multi-generational, for example, and, and f- forms of nationhood, symbols of nationhood, which are multi-generational, that that's important for, social cohesion and that, you know, so, so I think, I think that this emphasis on the cultural, so both, you know, obviously free speech, but also some sort of defense of traditions, family, nationhood, etc. cetera, uh, not in an extreme way, not going back to the 1950s, but, but essentially saying that there was a lot of good in that and we can't just degenerate into this 
scenario where the history is nothing but a litany of, of racist and sexist crimes and that we should be ashamed of and, and only utopia in the future is what, what we can invest our hope in, which is sort of the, the way in which the kind of progressive narrative is going. I think there is resistance to all of that stuff, and I think that does represent a kind of intellectualism, but you're right that, that it's not less, yeah. yes. not like at the surface, like when I think about intellectual buzzwords like systemic racism, LGBTQIA, um, transphobic, like these things which are sort of, they've gained currency within, say, you can use them and express them. And I feel like maybe people struggle, or at least on some aspect of it, conservative intellectuals are struggling to break into that cultural conversation, at least amongst younger generations. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's quite divided in some ways. I mean, clearly certain words like free speech, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you yep. throw, if you so throw certain words like free speech or reason, right, Yeah. or authoritarian, you know, that, that there, there is a resonance to a, a term like woke, which is referring to kind of progressive authoritarianism around these sacred values. Right. I mean, so there are some of those buzzwords, mm-hmm. um, except I, I would say they exist online, in the online sphere right. rather than anything institutional. So they would exist with now, Sam Harris and Barry Weiss and people like that. Mm. Um, but and, and in publications on the right, like, you know, even National Review and, and City Journal and, and, and uh, Claremont Review. And so there's quite a bit happening, I would say, media wise and also in to some degree in think tanks more and more. Like I think Manhattan Institute's doing a lot. I think Policy Exchange, uh, CSP, all, all of which I've, I'm involved with. Are, are doing a fair bit in this area, but you're right. In, in if you were to go to a university, mm-hmm. you would you would be hard pressed to find this. You know, you, right. you won't <laughs> you won't find Jordan Peterson studies going on at university. <laughs> oh. Exactly. Yeah. Well, professor, thank you so much for your time. And maybe Thanks, as, as a last question, do you have any future plans, any books that you can sort of drop, or hints you can drop as to what your plans uh, for the future hold? Yeah. Well, I mean, just immediately. I mean, I've got a, a, a report I want to do on. On essentially cancel culture, looking again at a survey to to, to see how broad it is, mm-hmm. how how big a political issue it is, uh, and then I want to do a, you know a, a book where I'm really I'm really trying to sketch out what a future, what a post woke future would be like, mm. and where, where where we say you know there are there is some merit to the idea of pursuing equality uh, between race, gender, sexual groups, whatever. Uh, but but we've gone too far. How, you know, mm-hmm. What might it mean to have a balanced approach where you take some of this on board, but mm-hmm. not everything would be about you know exact proportional representation in everything and and right. you know so so that's sort of thinking about what because mm-hmm. I think there's lots and lots of critiques and, and people like Douglas Murray and, and mm-hmm. there've been a lot of people sort of pointing out all the problems and, and maybe I've been among them with with the wokeness uh, and the sort of authoritarian nature of, of, of this but but what is our alternative i think that is something that needs fleshing out in greater depth so that's something i'm going to try to do hopefully in less than 600 pages uh, next time <laughs> amazing professor thank you so much for that i don't want to take any more time of your day but have a great one and we'll be in touch thanks Ari. thanks a lot take care thanks so much have a good one all right bye-bye yeah.